I'm your host Andreas Bindori and this week's episode is a medley of previous guests that I like to call Everyday Heroes. They are Barry Dempsey, Tony Duffin, Ross Thompson, Daniel Hannigan, Adam Gain and Charlie Wright. They all do wonderful things for the community in their own ways and they continue to do so. While I'm editing this episode, the news that his father Tony Coote has passed away has just arrived. Adam Gain worked with Tony for the past couple of years. Tony had motor neuron disease. I had the pleasure to record a conversation with him last November. And without a doubt, was one of the most inspiring and incredible person I ever met. I would like to dedicate this episode to Father Tony Coote. May he rest in peace. Can I call you up a while on a Friday night? We could reminisce on old days and we could talk a while. Just sit and talk a while. Been so long now since I've seen you. And just tell me a bit about what you do from the social care point of view. And- Okay, so it's been probably, I'd say, roughly around kind of 20 years in the social care scene. Um, My role right now is a preventative support worker, working with teenagers who are at risk or actively using substances or alcohol. And they're obviously getting into situations that they, they, they can't fully control, whether that's sort of poor school attendance or hanging around with gangs or pushing their parents to the limit or homelessness. And then you've got like mental health issues and stuff like that as well. So by providing a preventative sort of network of support, I think we're trying to stabilize beha- behavior at mm. an early age. And what we're finding is increasingly, it's probably, I think years ago, maybe a couple of generations ago, it used to be like 17, 18 year olds were in, were in sort of trouble. I think now we're finding the trends are a whole lot earlier. And I think intervention is probably needed around nearly like 10 or 11. Is oh, it's, it's actually got that young, whether that's, getting weed for free by a dealer um, and then being asked to pay the money back in different ways of holding substances or whatever. So there's a whole presentation of problems that we, we find that um, the current trends are, are pretty pretty scary. So, wow. And uh, so who, who do you work with? What's the organization? Or, or So I work for the Neighborhood and Family Youth Project based in Monkstown and we would be funded partially by the local drug and alcohol task force and then there's a family support end of of our organization which would be supported and funded by Tusla. So my end of things would be working with other agencies doing a lot of interagency collaboration and making sure that everybody is kind of on the same hymn sheet a little Mm. bit as well and that there's no kind of duplication of work but in terms of getting the optimum sort of results for my client, my teenager, it would be involving a wraparound service with other organizations as well. And so you're based amongst them, do you operate just around the south side then? Or? It's kind of, yeah there's, yeah, there's an outreach, luckily there's an outreach component to it, so you can kind of get around a little bit of south side, County Dublin. You know, like drug issues, the way they present, withdrawal, withdrawal paranoia, reclusivity, those are things that a teenager isn't going to exactly knock on your door looking for help. So mm. you need to kind of find them mm. and see where they're at and kind of build that bridge and work to where they're at. So um, there's a lot of harm reduction involved as well. Wow. Okay. 
I didn't. I must say, I didn't know the the, the existence of this um, the service, mm. and uh, it's good to know. And as many of you working in there, we've got we've got two in our project, but we've got a sister project as well. And there's there's one person up there, but we've we've probably tried to create a bit of a hub um, of services. So the you know Dunleary and the Dunleary Rat Down area will be will be quite well serviced, I suppose, by established projects, and we're probably new enough on the scene in terms of. It's kind of a pilot project, which is which is in its third, close to its third year now. Um, but there are other established projects around. Okay, well, I'm going to talk to you a lot more about that. But um, as I always do, we just break it down straight away with a, with a song. And a lovely song you put down is uh, While My Guitar Gently Weeps yeah. by the Beatles. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What's that yeah. all about? Uh, well, I grew up in Belgium. Um, I spent sort of 10 years in Belgium. My, my mother and father were, were, were over there kind of working and they took myself and my, my younger sister, luckily, with them. And um, we did a lot of family holidays to Spain, Italy, France and the car journeys were kind of soundtracked by the Beatles' early work and kind of all the way through. So the Beatles was just something that, that, that kind of really came to me as the first band musically that really kind of spoke to me. And then While My Guitar Gently Weeps as well is just one of those ballady sort of tunes that speaks to a lot of people, I think. And uh, I think it was... It's fabulous tune. Yeah, Prince's solo as well in the live version. That's um, right. Was, was insane. So yeah, that's yeah. where that comes from. Brilliant. One of the main things you're doing at the moment, part of your work, is the pushing for the decriminalization of the Sure, yeah, yeah. How would, like, in the 18 years you've been working here in this field, um, and what you've seen changing, like, I'm reading the um, 70, like, I was reading some of the quotes, the, the, one of your reports, the not, not criminals, the yeah. uh, 12,000 um, arrests in 2017, and probably 70% of that. As single drug use, uh, small mm. drug use, and 2016 was even more than that. So, do you feel that that really is going to make a difference? Yeah. And why? Uh, okay, so so um, I've said it already, but but drug use is 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 not should not have been ever dealt with through the criminal justice system. Mm. Uh, drug use is a health issue. It's all about risk and harm, mm. um, and. We, you know, we, we even have now a situation where through the criminal justice system, we're trying to, they are trying to uh, find ways of, of getting people to address their, their, um, their drug use from a health perspective, which is kind of reverse engineering mm -hmm. uh, through the criminal justice system when in fact this is, should just be a health issue. So just to, just to go back to the, ba the basics, we have prohibition. It's been there since 1977, since the Misuse of Drugs Act 1977 was uh, uh, bill was introduced, and um, it hasn't worked. Right, we 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 have more drugs than than ever before. Uh, we they they are they are cheap, uh, they are potent, 
um, and we have more harm to our community and our families and individual uh, that, that's using them. Um, and, you know, legalisation, which people often confuse decriminalisation with, and I'll just explain the difference Please now. Yeah. Legalisation is the regulation and control of the market. So the idea that you would regulate and control heroin, maybe you know, and other drugs like ecstasy and cocaine and whatever it might be. We're not talking about that. We're talking about decriminalisation. Um, that, you know, uh, drugs remain illegal, um, but that the, the possession of drugs, the, the use of drugs, the, 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 so having drugs on you, uh, the response is different to the criminal justice system. You don't go to court, you have an intervention, a health intervention. Okay. Um, and what that does is it frees up the criminal justice system to focus on um, supply um, and control and uh, and and that they can focus on that side of the house themselves uh, and that, that the health side of the house as it were uh, would focus on drug use um, the concerns that people have about that is that you know what kind of message are we giving young people um, uh, are we somehow normalizing drug use the answer to that is no no we're not uh, drugs remain illegal um, it's just that we uh, respond in a more adult way. Uh, uh, we treat our, I think it's something like a third of the population where have reported that they've used drugs in their lifetime. I mean, that, yeah. that's yeah. mad. Like, that's I mean, they're, they're like uh, in their lifetime, not all the time, in their lifetime, it's reported. And it, I, it has been done in Portugal, right? What you're yeah, talking about. yeah. So, so, and their outcomes are, are really good. Okay. Um, uh, they, they have... Um, they've reduced their overdose deaths. They've reduced the number of people who uh, 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 who would be um, considered addicted. You know, so so people. Though, I think they had a hundred thousand uh, heroin users when they introduced decrim in uh, two thousand, and uh, now there's about fifty thousand from a population of ten and a half million. Right? Um, they have uh, in two thousand and four, so two thousand and fifteen. They, they had uh, around 40 overdose deaths um, and we had the equivalent of one a day, so around 360. Um, uh, so as I say, we have a population of four and a half million, they have a population of ten and a half million. So we need to get our... We, what, why, would, why would Decrim do that? I suppose the reason that happens is because you destigmatize drug use which means that people can come forward sooner, they can talk to their family, they can talk to their loved one, or they can come to a place like the Analyphi or wherever, and they can, they can quickly, that gets people through to treatment, rehabilitation, a healthier choice is much faster. Um, there is no need to be uh, targeting drug use, uh, looking for people in possession of drugs. Um, we, you know, the, the, the police, the guards, can be focused on um, the dealers, the the, 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 the the bigger the bigger players in this uh, that side of things. Um, we would be able to help people faster uh, and more effectively uh, have a more effective response and, and save taxpayers money's money um, uh, if we decriminalise drugs. There is a working group working on this. Um, they're due to report back before the end of the year, so it's very very important, you know. That we that we move towards the decriminalisation of drugs for personal use. That we have a health-led, a health response 
to drug use for every individual. And we need to give people every opportunity, not one opportunity, mm. every opportunity. This is a, this problem uh, for people, it is chronic and relapsing. This, you know, when, when you are addicted to drugs, this is not something that goes away quickly. You have to work really hard uh, to address your drug use. So if we only end up giving people, you know, one chance, that's not gonna work. That's mm. just putting off the inevitable. Um, and we need to, yeah, we need to work harder at helping people rather than punishing them. And I suppose the collateral damage as well, uh, both from a stigma and from a criminal point of view, is if a person north north sea to Dublin decides that's it, time to go, but he's, he's a criminal record now. All of a sudden, he can't even travel yeah. to yeah, whatever yeah. And that could be that could be somebody who's, who's needs to get been out caught once, yeah. and it was just a you know exactly. a teenage year sort of uh, experimentation or it can be someone who was well known to the guards and has possession and all that sort of stuff in their in their criminal record um, but you know people's life opportunities are affected by um, by criminalizing them for a health issue sure. so you will not be able to travel uh, to the to America Okay, you will not get that job that you want when people check your card or refer or reference. It's it's disproportionate response. You know, um, people can change. Uh, we believe that. We see it. Okay. See it, yeah. In fact, I think I actually hope and think that the criminal justice system believes that as well. It's just that once you have a record, you know, your 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 opportunities, your life opportunities are damaged. Yeah. The Cure, love mm. song, live at Bestful, great song. Great song. Um, why this song? Uh, love songs are great, um, and this is a great love song. Yeah. You know, um, I will always love you. What a line! There you go, and repeated throughout the song. And uh, um, you know, no matter where I am or no matter what I say, I will always love you. Robert Smith, you know, uh, a great singer songwriter. The Cure, you know, they they. They uh, released that originally in 1989, but that live version was recorded in 2011. Um, live music is very important to me as well. Um, off to see a band tonight in Dublin as well. So, um, you know, uh, going to gigs, seeing people, see, seeing bands live, very, very important. And maybe we can talk about uh, drug use at festivals at some point. But, but um, yeah, but the uh, um, this particular song, just a great love song and uh, yeah. Um, very poignant good stuff First responders. Yeah. First of all, uh, tell me about who are the first responders. What, what, right. what is it? So, first responders are community first responders. It was started in Shalala, in a small village in Shalala in County Wicklow. Wicklow is split down the middle by a mountain range, so it's not easy for you know emergency services ambulance to get to more remote parts of Wicklow. A couple of guys got together and set up a 
community first responder scheme, which is training people up in CPR and um, how to deal with patients with chest pain uh, or cardiac arrest. So in other words, the idea would be that if somebody called 999 or 112, the call centre at the other end would be keying in certain for certain words. So if you called up and said, oh, I've got my mother here, uh, she's got a pain in her chest and she's lost, she's sweating and she's shortness of breath, that would all be keyed, keyed into a system at the other end. And certain keywords would trigger a response to a mobile phone. So the community first responder would be armed with a bag, with a defibrillator. Uh, we used to have very various different masks and oxygen tanks. We don't do the oxygen anymore. But more importantly, they'd be trained up in CPR. And the idea would be that they'd be in their community. They would receive a text with the location, the, the, the added response to, to go to and the the complaint of the patient and the idea would be that you could be there within three minutes mm. of of a call coming in so i you know that started in shalala it soon spread to ev- most most small towns in, in wicklow and i spotted it in the wicklow times that the first responders about 10 years ago the first responders were having an agm and i knew about it in greystones and i said god wouldn't that be a great thing to get involved with from a community spirit <clears throat> excuse me community spirit point of view you know, I wanted to give back to the community. I can't teach or coach football. I can't teach basketball or GAA. But I said, I'll, have, I'll throw a hand at this. So I got involved, got trained up. Uh, I go on a rota three nights a week. I used to do five nights a week. Eventually went on to be an instructor. We train up new people. It basically means that you'd be on call, say, on a Sunday night from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. on a Monday morning. And you can get a call or a text at any time to respond to a call out in the community. It could be somebody with uh, passing out unconscious chest pain and the idea is that you would get to that person within three, four minutes. We also respond to people that have symptoms of stroke and usually, you know, not too far behind you, you'd have an advanced paramedic arriving in a, a little jeep or you might be waiting for an ambulance. Maybe so possibly. it's that very important <clears throat> first five minutes. Yeah, yeah, it's it key. It really is key, uh, particularly with... with um, chest pain or cardiac arrest, you know, a person's uh, chance of survival are really greatly increased. And has it, uh, has it moved across Ireland or is it still just in Wicklow? Or is it, uh... No, it's very much moved across Ireland to different communities, yeah, different counties. Um, okay. not quite sure of the uptake in, in different, you know, the amount of groups in different counties, but Wicklow is well represented. I know Tipperary is well represented. Some of the bigger counties and cities, obviously it's much more difficult, but then again, they would be closer to... Uh, you know, accident and emergency and ambulance services, so it's not as bad. So it's more for the remote the remote areas. areas yeah. Yeah. And uh, if people want to get involved, where, well, how, what's the best way for people um, to get involved? Well, certainly for Greystones, you just search for the Community First Responders Facebook page. That's a good place to start. It's pretty easy. Is there a website? Do you know? Uh, we don't have a website uh, okay. as such. Um, but search First Responders Ireland. CFR Ireland, Community CFR. First Responders Ireland, okay. and that'll link you to the different groups around the country. Um, we also do a lot of training in schools. Uh, we get involved with different community groups. We'd have the Irish Heart Foundation Day where we'd set up a little gazebo and we'd have out the mannequins and the defibrillators. And we'd take the mystery out of defibrillators. You know, there's a lot of them hmm. around different towns in Ireland, but people might be a little bit unsure. Oh, I better not touch one of those if, if, you know, if somebody collapses in front of you. So what we're trying to do is take the mystery out of it. Basically you switch the defibrillator on, big green button that says mm. power. You turn it on, the machine tells you what to do. It yeah. says, you know, take out the pads, 
place them on the patient's bare mm. chest, and you follow the prompts of the machine. CPR then, you know, compressions and breaths, pretty easy, straightforward, 30 compressions, two short breaths, 30 compressions, two short breaths, put the defibrillator on, switch, you know, put the pads on, switch it on, and follow the prompts. It's pretty straightforward, but to get the message across that it's, it's not that hard, but any intervention at all can, be, can have a great help for Can't people's chance life. of survival, yeah. I'm going to ask you a couple of more things about the responders, but um, before that, I think one of my favorite songs of all time, Prince, Sign of the Times. Yeah, yeah, I was a huge Prince fan, as a lot of us were back in the 80s. And for me, Sign of the Times, I think it was 87. There was a lot of things going on in the world in, in 87, you know, Reagan and Gorbachev, the Cold War, the, mm. the nuclear threat was very real. And, and for us in school, you know, it wasn't unusual to have those conversations with your English teacher about, you know, shelters and nuclear fallout. And, you know, then you had the AIDS epidemic and the fallout of that and what that meant for the world. And that was, you know, for teenagers, you know, it wasn't such, you know, people were very aware of it. And um, I think, Prince, you know, brought a lot of those messages across in that song. And mm. <clears throat> the visuals on that video, it was just words flashing at you. And that, you know, that audio, that track and that visuals, those words coming across, mm. quite clever. And those messages were getting across. So, yeah, very much. Uh, yeah, he was ahead of his time. For very sure. much, yeah, very much ahead of his time. So. Gigs. Tell me a bit about what you do with this uh, pop-up catering gigs. Um, so it's called Food for Thought and um, we basically take over a restaurant for a night and normally we do like a five-course tasting menu and it's for three teas like you said. And it's, uh, the first one we did was for Pieta House so I've, we've done four and the fifth one is in September or yeah the end of this month and um, we kind of we try and do it so that in a way like so that it's kind of informative for the people and that like they know what they're there for so there's people who will kind of stand up and talk at different stages in the night but we make sure everyone eats together at the same time because i just think it's important for like a kind of communal aspect and sitting around a dinner table and eating together and talking and you know i don't think people talk as much anymore because they're everyone's so busy and and then, like, suicide is such a huge issue and, and mental health problems is such a massive issue now at the moment as well that it's, that I just think it's nice to, for people to come in and, and sit and eat together and have a laugh and chill out and, you know, do whatever they want to do, have a few drinks and stuff like that. But the way we kind of want to do it differently, well, the, the difference in, in one part is that everyone eats together. So it puts a lot of pressure on the kitchen because you'd normally stagger it. So you do like 10 people and then 20 minutes later you do 10 people and whatever, you kind of stagger like that. 
but I like to put us royally in the weeds and and uh and yeah we cook everyone at the same time but the we try and get the best chefs we can to do it like we did the first one we did here and we did 27 and then we did one in the pigeon house in Dalgany and we did 106 people and that was a shockingly shocking shockingly shocking amount of work for everybody uh and uh, that was our first one for three t's and i met i met lisa claire and brefney uh from the three t's a few weeks beforehand and since then like i talk to them every week uh they're like a family kind of almost they're like an amazing group of people an amazing positive group of people i i don't know what i expected working with kind of mental health charities and whether they'd be really intense and you know deep and you know i don't know what I expected, but they weren't what I expected. They just—they're really bubbly people who want to do nice things and they want it to be positive. They want to do positive things, and they've been incredibly helpful to us and kind of pushed us further on. And the one our event coming up in like a few weeks is—I literally like as a young chef, like I—they are the chefs involved in this next one. I would have like thought about what it would be like to like talk to these guys yeah. a few months ago. And like I know one of them well enough. I've been eating his restaurant. His, his restaurant's my literally hands down my favorite restaurant in the city. It's called Forest and Marcy. But then we have Damien, who's got a Michelin star in a, in a little place in Black Rock. I don't know how he's the one in the Black Rock Market. <laughs> yeah, um, and I actually ate there for the first time. It's incredibly difficult to get a to get a seat there. But I got, we got, me and Niall managed the rich and we got a seat there and Damon was asking us, he knew about the events, like, and he asked us, like, I'll say, who's cooking it next one? Niall said, you are. He goes, oh, okay, fine. So he got him in. But th- that's great. Just tell me a little bit more, that's absolutely fascinating. When Lisa told me about it, I thought, this is an amazing idea. Um, so you started off, you thought, okay, I'm going to use my skill to, to raise some funds for Pieter House first mm-hmm. and then 3Ts, which is basically what you decide it's going to be for the next few and so the first one you got a few other chefs and put it together. Now from there on you're going. I'm gonna get the best chef possible yeah. that I can get yeah. to work with me on the night. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. Well, like well, the first one we did it. We kind of just um, lined it up with the Tuesday tasting mm. here. Um, so we kind of just did a similar kind of format. So we did tasting every Tuesday, and my head chef, me and my head chef Dave, kind of helped cooked it. And we had a girl Neve Barry. She did the dessert. She's incredibly talented pastry chef. Um, she did dessert and we kind of just, it was simple enough, like we were used to it now every week, so it was grand. But uh, but it's progressed to the last one you did in the opium. Yes, so we did, we changed tack a bit there for that yeah. one because I, I kind of made a mistake at one event and we didn't, we kind of sold drinks separately to the food and it meant people ended up buying drink from the restaurant that wasn't part of the drink that was sponsored and it was it just caused a bit of trouble okay. so so now with the taste menus we pair a drink with each course um so it means the price goes up right so like the tickets were 50 euro and now they're and then it was 75 i think and now the next one's 100 so it's expensive so with opium um i wanted to make it more accessible to people and and we will do more of those events because I loved it. It was amazing. Because you're raising a lot of funds for... Yeah, like, I think after, after Mulberry, it'll be... After the next one, it'll be about, I'd say, about 70. If, I'm, if I get my finances correct or if I 
have all my percentages right with all the stuff, I'll, it'll be about 17 grand for the year, which That's I brilliant. never thought would be That's brilliant. That's something brilliant. I would do. I mean, the reason we kind of do it is I lost my dad through suicide when I was five. So I always, and growing up, we were always able to talk about it at home and stuff. Like mum would, anytime we needed to talk about it, mum would talk and it was never like, I don't want to talk about that sort of stuff. Mm. It was always, whatever you're feeling about anything ever. Um, would always be spoken about so I've always been okay okay with like okay with it as okay sure. I suppose you could be but okay with it and I mean we raised I raised some money when I was like 16 in school and then last year I was thinking like oh could I do another pub quiz or could I do something and I was like well, how would I why don't I just do what I do yeah it's fantastic idea um, yeah just the, let's break it up with the, this beautiful song by Christine and the Queens. Yeah, Tilted. Yeah, again, again, the, I didn't know her, but uh, oh, really, beautiful. beautiful yeah, song. It, no, I like this one. And, uh, this is my favorite song for about a year. I think I listen to it all the time. Uh, but again, it's just kind of a bit of a boppy song. When you're if you've got the earphones walking down the street, you've got a bit of a strut going, and it's uh, it's good. I just like it. It's just a really good, uh, really good tune. things about the MND because it, it, it is a, it's just a, it's just a cruel disease and I said I had the pleasure and the fortune to meet with Tony in his yeah. house recently and and I, I, I did say it and said it to anybody I met it was one of the most inspirational conversation I had uh, when you see somebody with MND it just don't know I don't know how to react I don't know what you're supposed to do or not supposed to do and but then inside as you say Tony is, is full of life is living to his fullest what would you say to somebody like myself meeting somebody with an MND? What, what, what are we supposed to do? What, what as a, like you live it every day. For you, it's, mm. it's not normal, but that's your eighth year working with somebody with MND between yeah. Simon and Tony. Yeah. So you're more accustomed yeah. to it. It's very easy to answer. Yeah. And again, it's a philosophy probably from Tony. He did this walk from Donegal to Bike. He, he walked the length of the country with. Uh, a troop of 100 plus on a rotation basis but he walked the length of the country last year uh, for to raise money for the IMNDA and RMND Research Motor Neurons Disease and um, his campaign was called Walk While You Can and since then everything has become while you can uh, walk while you can, drink while you can dance while you can um, and his book which comes out at the end of March is called Live While You Can so that would be, that would be my answer. It's just do everything you can while you can, and it's 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 one of the life philosophies as well. It's like, sadly, Tony is is passing away potentially faster than others, but we are all in that process. And mm. um, I think it was Oscar Wilde said, "If you're not busy being born, you're busy dying." Mm. And I think again, it's very more. It's a, might be a morbid thought process but I think if you are aware of your own mortality you might live your life a bit more and just yeah live it 
But it, it also, but in terms of meeting the likes of, like I felt really at ease talking to him. Um, but I can understand that sometimes it could be, there's a, there's a, I, I don't know what the word is, a, a, there's a pity from a navel butt or whatever you want to call yeah. it towards somebody in a wheelchair. Yeah. Uh, but I know for a fact, having met Tony, that's not what he wants. You know, he wants yeah. to be talking to Tony like he was when you were talking to him last year. So it's not something that you've witnessed as if you're walking around with him, going to the shop or whatever. Yeah. Do you notice people kind of reaction to, or yeah. should it be a little bit more relaxed about it? Yeah, or? absolutely. Yeah. People are so, not uptight, people are so um, cautious. Like he's, he's okay. Like he, okay, he has this terminal disease. As I say, you know, life is terminal. He, one thing that happens when you end up in a chair, and I don't know if it's the same for everyone, but people talk to you louder. Are you okay? Can I get you anything? And it's like, his hearing is fine. His hearing is fine. He can hear you. Just talk to him normally. And it's, um, yeah, some people come and, and they, they have this, the face of empathy. Um, or sympathy and it's kind of like just talk to normally you know don't talk about the chair the disease or the speech or the the you know how's that it's everything it's like just you know have a chat it's grand you know so that is important for him obviously yeah. or for anybody that's yeah. in that situation yeah. now having said, having said that i there's time i i i know most people in chairs and most people turn out they don't want pity but I, I do sometimes, uh, my heart breaks from, my heart breaks from, I see what he goes through. Mm. See, what he, like, it's, it's a really hard disease. Mm. It's really tough. Uh, it's, it's one of the worst, and it's, it's really hard to witness on. Yeah, that's, um, and that, I came about you, not because of Tony, because a friend, common friend, Galen, yeah. that uh, said, you got to talk to Adam, you know. He's a great guy, and and he did, you know. In fairness, that's why we're here. Um, and you're very emotional, which is great. It's great yeah. to know you have a heart. And, uh, yeah, no, no, but genuinely, because it doesn't matter whether you want to call it vocation, or not. But yeah. it is your vocation. Yeah. You, you're there spending time with a great man. That unfortunately is gonna, um, yeah, your relationship with him is gonna be as long as you like it to have it. You know, but no, it's good to hear that. For the likes of myself, meeting somebody on the chair. For whatever the reason they're on the show, especially if it's M and D, yes, be normal. Don't yeah. make it worse than it yeah. is. You know, they will let you know. I suppose if they need to be yeah. a bit of if they need a bit of pity or not, you know. Yeah. And then by and large, they don't. Um, what you, you just mentioned the 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 car the sorry the trip across um, the states. You're into your bikes, are you? Or are you just, yeah. just you wear? Yeah, I was, or I am. I don't know. I'm well, once a biker, always a biker. Right. But I've been riding bikes for 12, 13, 14 years. And uh, yeah, I love, love the bikes. I, 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 I once had a bit of an inheritance from my granny, and I just flew to the States and bought a motorbike and drove across the States. And with the intention of selling that same bike, so I started in LA and finished in Boston. Plan was drive across, sell the bike, come home, go back to work. Uh, this is while I was working for Simon. So, um, and this that's that was one of my coping mechanisms. Was I'd say once a year I would take two months off. So and and 
regrettably I felt awful about. Um, and actually there's another song which isn't on my list, but High and Dry by Radiohead. I feel like I so often left Simon High and Dry, but I had to do it for my own mentality and so that I could come back and be... <coughs> but yeah, um, drove across the States. Do you do it on your own? Did it by myself, yeah. How long did it take you? About six weeks. Nice. I was just plain sailing, so easy. And what same. bike did you bike? It was did a ride? Honda Shadow 750 American mm-hmm. Classic Edition. Nice. And uh, I remember people asking me on that trip, um, oh, why are you doing this? Is it You're doing it for charity. And I was like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, just... just uh, for my just own self-care. Had, I, yeah, I had the money somehow and uh, decided to do it. But then, by, yeah, I, the bike didn't sell in Boston. So I was like, look, I'm not going to leave it there. I just shipped it home. And I had fallen in love with the bike. So I shipped it to Ireland, which was, again, very, very expensive. And uh, then a few years later, so it was back in, that was the States back in 2014, 2017, I think, I did it. I decided to do a charity trip. So it was for Pieta House and the IMNDA. And I drove to technically Asia, but it was Istanbul. Istanbul, mm-hmm. Asia and back, because you mm-hmm. go past the, the Asian border. Mm-hmm. So my campaign was called Asia and back. Okay. And so I went down through, yeah, through mainland Europe down into through the Balkans and into Turkey and around southwest Turkey back through Greece and Italy and Sardinia and wow. ferry hopping across and all on your own again yeah yeah wow. yeah that was a horrible no it wasn't a horrible trip but it was really <laughs> tough the engine died I had to replace it the Cyrillic alphabet um just <laughs> all the different languages a few different currencies and it's just it was it was really hard i, I don't regret it but it was really hard and really fast paced and it, it just wasn't as chilled as the states and because i was video blogging blogging i was spending about three or four hours every night putting a video together based on the day that i just had so i didn't i was in naples but never went to pompeii which is a 15 minute drive and mm. um, so it felt more like work than... Yeah, it's a really fast pace. I came back exhausted. It wasn't, <laughs> it was not a holiday. It was two months of endurance, but it was good. It was great. Well, that's a perfect song then. Yeah. Your long journey. Alison Krauss and Robert Plant. Yeah. Well, this song is, it's more, it's actually more to do with Simon. Um, and it's the album Raising Sand. Is Although, yeah, no, it is fitting. Um <laughs> The album Raising Sands, Simon would have a regular repertoire of albums that he would play in the morning. So it would be um, Meatloaf, um, Raising Sand, um, I can't remember the other ones now. I can't remember. But anyway, this album he used to listen to, and I suppose you can often hear a song many, many times without listening to the lyrics. And it wasn't until after he died that I actually listened to the song. And when I heard the words, it, it, it just killed me because it's, it's about death. And um, it kind of brought me back to those mornings, you know, getting Simon out of bed was not a quick process, you know, it took, took an hour or so. And so I, I used to, I just, when I first listened to the lyrics, I thought back, I said, Jesus, t- Simon used to, to listen to this, these words um, and he was so reflective on, on the process that he was going through and I suppose maybe his awareness of his mortality and it's, but it's also a very, um, I don't know how to describe the song, it's, it's powerful, it's, it's not 
I wouldn't say it's morbid, I'd say it's, uh, it's peaceful. God's given us years of happiness here. Now we must part. And as the angels come and call for you, the pains of grief turn. Yeah, you took the, the idea from Yellowbird and Red Hot and you went, okay, what, how am I going to use my creativity? to to do something good mm-hmm. how did you start to contact the artist tell us a bit about it because i know a little bit about it but i'd love to the, the listen to know so i mean i can't remember exactly coming up the concept i mean like i said yellow bird and, and red hot kind of influenced it i i didn't really feel like i was at a point where i'd be able to do a music project you know you really gotta have like a lot of clout experience and and also like set up money to do that and it wasn't something i could do um yellow bird project and i saw a few other people running their own brands and i thought oh you know naively i was like oh i reckon i can you know design some t-shirts with some people like there's a lot of i sort of started on this idea somewhere and i can't remember where from that the people we would be helping why not involve them in the actual process of like what we are creating rather than just raising money do you know what i mean and i you know i, I was chatting to friends about it and, and i, I know there's a point where i was like it's gonna be too difficult to do that and um one particular friend of mine, I think Will, I remember very clearly being like, but that idea is so good, you can't not do it. And I was like, oh my God, I, this like middle class kid has got to go and find someone who's homeless or been homeless to approach them for this project. Like it's, it's this is the problem I think with a lot of our societies, like that kind of idea of interacting with someone like that actually seems quite intangible and intimidating. You know, like who the hell am I to be to be kind of approaching someone for that? But um, I kind of, you know, a bit of Googling around arts and the homelessness world and Cafe Art is this uh, amazing social enterprise who do art projects with people who've experienced homelessness. Um, And I got in contact with them and and actually I've ended up working with a lot of artists that are known to them and and, in their community. And they're just really supportive, like straight away, just put me in, trying to put me in touch with uh, David Tovey, who turned out to be just like, although it was hard to pin him down at first, I think he was a bit reluctant um i managed to get hold of him and we worked i it was as simple as finding some illustrations he had that i thought would work and i kind of worked that into a first collection and kind of with his kind of uh his artwork at the center of it and always getting feedback from him about choosing what we were doing and stuff and uh yeah and then opened just before christmas managed to get a few orders out before christmas and then Come February, start doing Camden Market, which ended up being a big part of like our sort of beginning of our story. And yeah, I just it just kind of went from there. And uh, it was a lot based around that first collection with David. And, and David is someone who just at first it was just kind of we'd meet a couple times, kind of send emails back and forth over like choices and stuff. And then we now... You know, I, I consider him like a really close friend and we work really closely together and I hope that he feels that Hopeful Traders has really helped him on his way to becoming, you know, the successful artist that he is, who's now an advocate for kind of other people, an advocate for kind of uh, creativity in the homeless, in home, uh, for amongst homelessness, sorry. Um, you know, he, he's done a lot. And so, yeah, so 
it was like it was one of those things there was a, there was definitely a point where it's like i was like i don't know how we're going to get this first collaboration made but once i actually met david everything kind of snowballed and, and came together yeah because i saw i saw a couple of uh this couple of uh, clips of david talking about his his problems he had when he was homeless and when he, he was going through issues and then through you he kind of got back in on his feet and you know he's obviously he's very he's, his work has been shown at the tate modern and a couple other places which is fantastic but so then like and i know for your collection there's various designs from there so you literally then from there i'm just curious how you went to and find out about more people i mean did they get out in the in the world uh, in the in, in london or people start to talk about it and they, they approach you or yeah how did they... a few different ways you know i mean people always ask me this question and it's never really the same answer uh cafe art have always been there kind of uh to as a kind of existing community of people like that from that of artists from that background um naomi taylor who again who was our second collaborator who i work with now she, i before i actually approached cafe art, i approached a cafe, uh, charity called shp and they put me in touch with her while she was at a cafe art exhibition um another charity we've worked with have ref, have uh, referred people on to me but yeah like quite quickly it became not that was like the least of our worries was finding collaborators um, amongst those people and amongst the kind of cafe art community and a few of the charity groups. Our name had gotten about and people are people are keen to you know create and put stuff out in the world. So yeah. And I guess that's what you're trying to do. What you're quite strong uh, about is the the lack of community spirit. And you're you you've talked about that in a couple of articles I read where you wish there was more community interaction. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm a big believer in social inclusion, and I really want to change the way that we kind of think about social social impact and kind of charity, or like you know maybe even dispel, just sort of get rid of the word charity completely. Like, I think you know in London you've got people almost living on top of each other who will never cross paths. Um, I don't see a places metaphysical or physical like do you know what i mean like places as in like brands or like communities or anything where you have someone who might be in have been in temporary accommodation in part of their life crossing paths with someone who maybe pulls in 80 grand a year at a bank or like or, or even just someone who works in like advertising and is earning you know is more just like middle class not necessarily ridiculously well off but um, you don't. I don't see a place where those two people can can interact, and yet there are so many similarities. Like a big thing, a big kind of movement in my age group has been setting up a startup, working for yourself, realizing creative aspirations, and a commercial platform, stuff like that. You know, that's you know why Shopify is massive, Etsy, all this stuff is these huge brands now. Um, and you know, Escape the City, a really big brand who like get people into jobs that are from banks but want to do something exciting. It's a really big movement amongst you know middle class wealthier people. But you go and speak to someone who's in temporary accommodation or the artists we work with, they are also just as interested. You like, I, I try and keep up a conversation. You know, we can only do so much to support people, but I always want to know what I, else I could be doing to support them, and they're like. I want to know how to run, to start a business. Like, what's the tax issues around starting a business? How do I get my work into a place where it's, how do I set up a website where I can commercialize my work and sell stuff? Where 
can I link up with other corporate brands or whatever to sell my stuff? And it is, it's, it's silly that, uh, I, not silly, it's just, it's actually great to know that there is this kind of creative or like entrepreneurial plateau on which everyone exists, no, no matter their background, do you know what I mean? Um, and I, what I really want to do next year especially is start running these workshops and tutorials and stuff and bring the, all those people into the same room. And because not only is it a great learning opportunity for all those people, but I think it's really good for people to learn to kind of familiar, be feel a bit more familiar with someone who maybe has been in temporary accommodation. Because like I said, like, and I, this is what I had as a problem when I said, I started like traders. If you're like a, from a middle-class background, like and you see someone who's a rough sleeper or like, you know, from a very different world, it seems intimidating and it goes, it works both ways and it's, it, it just doesn't need to be. And, and those two people rather than, and you know, at once a year, the more middle class person might donate to a charity that supports to someone in temporary accommodation, but it's, it's, it's not that kind of giving isn't like really, I mean, it's, it's works for a lot of things, but it's not really, you're not really changing anything socially there. You know, it's great. You're like donating to them being like, Oh, well, hopefully that company will, help them get a job at mcdonald's or whatever but what about you know you're not really giving them an opportunity to get up to the level that you're at you know um, and that's kind of what i'm interested in that makes sense okay um this song home by friends <laughs> yeah so i again like i i basically don't usually listen to the lyrics and things or i thought i didn't until i started actually learning what they meant uh, and this was a song i just thought i liked rhythmically and musically but you know, I think, you know, not to get super personal, but this song is about kind of like someone, I, I, my perception of it is it's like, it's from the voice of someone who, whose ex keeps on coming back to like wanting to sleep with them or whatever. And like, basically like kind of this common thing that happens where some people like break up or whatever. And then they kind of like seek refuge in someone they've been with before. And it's kind of a not intentional, but us not intentionally but is quite like an arsehole thing to do. And I think I like just carry like a lot of guilt sometimes about like my approach to like women when I was a bit younger. Like I, that makes it sound like I was like awful. Like I liked, I think I was, I don't think there's anyone out there with like a particularly bad view of me and the way I acted. But I definitely think that generally men don't realize the kind of like emotional, uh, like weight that they put on women in a lot of the situations they get themselves into and and I'm like hypersensitive to trying to not be like that and it again like some a lot of these songs it's just to do with things that I get anxious and worried about um and yet I still really enjoy the music for some reason maybe just a <laughs> a crater weird person but um yeah so like I kind of realized later on that it almost sounded like what I imagined someone would say to me Uh, even though I really, it's something I really would never want to hear, but um, I don't know, it sat with me for some reason. 